This is the East Traumacast. The East Online Education Committee would like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous, unrestricted educational grant to support the Traumacast. Welcome to the Traumacast. Happy New Year, everyone. 2021 has got to be better than 2020. Uh, to start the year off, I'm excited to bring you our next Traumacast series on rural trauma. We're going to begin this series by talking about our Level 1 Trauma Center's support of rural patients and trauma centers. We'll touch on trauma mechanisms seen in the rural community, transfer and transport considerations, common questions, and more. As always, we'll start by introducing our guests. As uh, I hope you know by now, I'm Carrie Valdez. I work in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, Alexandra, let's start with you for introductions. Please tell us who you are, where you are from, and what is your connection to rural trauma? Hi, I'm Alexandra Briggs. I live in New Hampshire, and I work at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, which is a level one trauma center in New Hampshire. And given the fact that many of our patients are from rural areas, I have learned much about rural trauma over the last three years while being here. And now I want to be able to share it with the rest of the community. Thank you. Avi, would you introduce yourself? Uh, Avi Bavaradri, uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. I've uh, been here about three years. Um, we have a very interesting distribution of, of trauma patients in Little Rock, with both urban and rural trauma, because the state's primarily rural, and we're the only uh, adult level one trauma center in the state. But we also have an interesting distribution of urban trauma, because we're in the city, and this is the biggest city in Arkansas. So I think I hope to bring uh, you know a unique experience with both urban and rural trauma experience, and that kind of changes um, how we approach things on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you. And Ashley, how about you? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I'm Ashley Meager. I am at IU Health Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis, um, Indiana. And um, I've been here for about two and a half years now. Um, similar to Avi, um, we take care of a lot of rural trauma. We tend to be the referral center for the majority of the state of Indiana which is um, quite rural outside of um, these, the population center of uh, Indianapolis. Um, and we do have uh, three level one trauma centers in Indianapolis, but outside of Indianapolis, there's um, no other level one centers. And uh, one of the things we're gonna touch on is uh, the East Rural Trauma Ad Hoc Task Force, which I'm also a member. So I'm gonna play the role of moderator and also a little bit of guest. Uh, my experience is I trained in, um, Norfolk, Virginia, Washington, DC, and Baltimore. So it's mostly urban um, experience. And then my first uh, position was at a level two trauma center in uh, um, mid-Michigan that then covered not only the city that we lived in, but also essentially the Northeast quadrant of all of Michigan as a referral center for rural trauma. So I learned things that um, a gator, when someone falls off a gator, it's not an alligator. It's a <laughs> machine that they use on farms. So I had a quite a, a fun time and, and a good time kind of learning more about it. So we were hoping to bring this trauma cast as, as part of the first series to share the experience of those of us who are at level ones that also cover quite a large breadth of uh, rural trauma as well. Um, Alexandra, you were very modest in your introduction. You did not let anybody know that you're the chair of the Rural Trauma Ad Hoc Task Force for East. I was hoping maybe you could explain what is this task force and then uh, what inspired you to initiate this project? I appreciate that. Thank you. I, like you, trained in places that were very different from where I am now. So I went to medical school in Chicago. I did my residency training in Boston and then my fellowship training in Pittsburgh. So all very much urban centers. 
and I wanted to come back to New England for my first job. And Dartmouth was the place that fit me really well. And then I got here and it's a very different experience of trauma than what I had experienced in the past. And, and it's amazing, you know, to be able to serve these patients, but it's a very different experience and one that I didn't think that I had heard a lot about at national meetings or during my training. And I thought that was something that we could improve upon. And in even going to EAST or WST or other meetings, there's a lot of science that is focused on urban trauma and on a lot of the challenges of urban trauma. And I felt like there was less that was focused on some of the challenges that we have in rural spaces. And so I started speaking with some of my colleagues who you know, are at places that serve large groups of rural patients like at West Virginia, um, you know, Indiana, other places where they see these patients. And we thought that it would be great for us to get together and actually try to share our experience with our community that may not know as much about what it's like. You know, when the average transfer time for some of the urban centers is something like seven minutes and hours can be five to seven hours, depending on the weather and the distance, it's a very different thing to take that call and try to help the person on the other side of the phone know what to do with a, a sick trauma patient. And so our, our goal with this ad hoc task force is in part to provide education on what rural trauma is like, provide an insight into the experience of rural trauma centers, and then also to some of our referring centers and try to address some of the challenges of rural trauma and how can we serve these patients better. Well, that's an excellent project and great idea. And, and it's been going on now for about a year, is that correct? Yes, we've, okay. you know, 2020 has been a challenge for everybody in terms of trying to get things off the ground, but I'm excited that this is our first trauma cast. And as you mentioned, it's gonna be one of a series. And our goal is to also put together a rural trauma toolkit. So for grads that are gonna be taking jobs in rural trauma areas, being able to provide insights on some of the things that they may encounter that they're not used to or that they need to be ready for, we wanna be able to prepare people for the job that they're about to step into, particularly if they haven't had the benefit of that experience during their residency or fellowship training. Well, that's a great place to get started. Ashley, um, how about you? Did you have much rural trauma training experience in, in your residency um, or were you kind of surprised and had to kind of learn on the job? Um, I was actually, so I, I did my residency in Chicago at Loyola, so really no very limited rural experience other than maybe some transfers in from um, rural Illinois. But um, when I went to my fellowship at Harborview in Seattle, Washington, it was my first real experience with kind of patients being transferred from far reaches of the uh, Pacific Northwest. I remember um, we had a patient transferred from Nome, Alaska for a spinal cord injury. And the, uh, you know, just the, the logistics of trying to get a spinal cord injured patient, uh, you know, flown from Nome to Anchorage and then onto a medical transport and then flown to Seattle, knowing that, you know, once they're in the air, there's really limited interventions they can do um, was just uh, astonishing to me. And, and transferring patients over the Cascades during winter is, is fraught with all kinds of issues. So I dealt with things that I had never really treated before um, hypothermia, you know, mountain climbers, a lot of these kind of uh, rural trauma issues that you only really learn about in the books when you're working in an urban center. And then Indiana, uh, when I came here is, uh, I was surprised at how rural Indiana is. About 1.5 million citizens of Indiana live in rural areas. 16 of Indiana's 92 counties don't have a hospital. 36% of Indiana's hospitals are in rural areas. And so it is a very rural state. And I was very surprised when I was started talking to transfer center calls at kind of the limitations of hospitals in the area. 
Abby, how about you? So we've got somebody who's got experience from the North with Ashley, and then you are now experiencing the South. What are some of the mechanisms that you're finding that are maybe different than uh, what we saw in urban training? What I've discovered since I've come to Arkansas is that, you know, the, the rural trauma patients kind of really are a very unique set of, uh, have a unique set of needs in our unique population. But the other issue we've noticed, at least in Arkansas, even, is that there was a tendency prior to uh, a development of the Arkansas trauma system that patients would sit at outside facilities for a quite long period of time, hours upon hours upon hours. In addition to now transport delays, if patients would show up here in, in pretty bad shape. I mean, very, very far behind the eight ball. It provides a unique set of circumstances because, you know, if you have a transfer time of two or three minutes, it's one thing, but if a patient's been bleeding for several hours, it, it presents different problems. And also I think resource availability is another issue. You know, a lot of pe people don't realize when you train at urban centers that these, you know, you just think, oh, what's the big deal? Give them some blood. But some of these places in rural Arkansas may not have a blood bank. So it's been a challenge trying to figure out some of these, you know, these issues. You know, I'll give you another example, transportation. You know, some of our counties in Arkansas don't have an EMS program, or if they do, they've got one ambulance. And so if you put a sick patient on that ambulance, all of a sudden that county has no ambulance. And so there was a lot of angst on their part about doing that. So one of the things that we, you know, set up as part of the trauma system was to have backstop arrangements and backfill agreements between neighboring counties so that if one county's ambulance goes out, the other county can cover until they can get that ambulance back. Now, when you're talking about bleeding patients, are you, do you find that urban centers have more penetrating and the rural centers have more blunt? Or do you find that you kind of get a mix of both from both regions? So I think it's very much regional. Like, for example, you know, Alexandria, as I would imagine, and I don't know for certain that there's probably not a huge amount of penetrating trauma, even in the cities. But for example, in Little Rock, which is, both, is an urban environment, but because of the nature of Arkansas, we get both. I mean, we see a, a fair number of penetrating trauma. I think it's somewhere between 15 and 15 to 18%. Yeah, that's what I found interesting in, in my first position was um, the penetrating in the urban area seemed to be violent. The penetrating in more the rural or sub-rural areas was more, you know, farming injuries, animal injuries, you know, being speared by a bull, being hit by the backhoe and or being amputated in the, the compress. Like there's different kind of, mechanisms, but it's still hemorrhagic shock, penetrating trauma. And in the urban center, like Alexander mentioned, like if you can get there in a few minutes, it's, it's usually a survivable injury. If you're sitting three hours away with two units of blood, no FFP, no reversal agents, that becomes a much, much more serious injury. I agree 100%. I think you hit, you know, another big point is, you know, we don't, you know, we assume that blood and blood products are universally available. And I mentioned that, you know, some places have limited blood products, but like you said, there are some places that have no platelets, that have no plasma. And, you know, I would honestly sometimes say that some of the, the rural trauma transfers that we get are, are more, I mean, I say more complex in the sense that there are different injury patterns. Like, you know, someone gets shot in the belly, shot in the chest, it, there are predictable injury patterns and they get to the, you know, our center relatively quickly, but. Sorry to interrupt the trauma cast, but at this point I have to edit for patient privacy. The short story is that there is a limb at threat. And there was discussions about my partner flying out to do a field amputation. I mean, that doesn't happen in, you know, I'd never actually seen a scenario where that might actually happen. And I can think of at least three situations in the last year where one of us has had been on, 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 the, on deck to potentially have to go do that. And so you know, when you're talking about a patient that's trapped like that for an hour, continuing to bleed in, a, in an environment that's far from clean, you know, it really presents a lot of unique problems. Bull um, maulings, for example, somebody getting impaired by, I'd never seen that in Atlanta when I was in residency. So, 
there's definitely a lot of unique aspects to rural trauma that if you don't train in a center like this, you would never ever think about. We, we get to watch the phases of stage one shock, stage two shock, stage three shock, and then we get them at stage four sometimes. Yeah, I think the extrication point is a really good one. You know, certainly with so many people doing outdoor active things up here in terms of, you know, hiking in the White Mountains, snowmobiling in the wintertime, they're off on trails that are not accessible and can be quite distant from anybody being able to go and get them. Certainly in the winter, that presents the additional challenge of these patients end up very hypothermic before anybody can even, you know, get there. And that certainly doesn't help them with their bleeding problems or with their head injury or things like that, that you're now having to then manage the amount of time it takes for EMS to be able to get there, our flight crews then trying to meet EMS to get them back to us. That, that presents a different challenge and I think a lot of people recognize. And it's something that we have to deal with and, and recognize that that's going to really affect how we are able to then prepare for the patient and, and get that patient you know, moving in the right direction. My husband has a penchant for snowmobiling uh, in northern Michigan, and I've insisted that he now turn on Google tracking and if he, if, if he doesn't move on the map for more than 10 minutes, I expect a text message. Otherwise, I'm sending out a crew for help. Because you're right, he could just, he could go off the side of a trail, hit a tree, and I would have no idea because I'm not expecting him to come home for six or seven hours. Yeah. yeah, once I started hiking a lot up here, I got a GPS tracker that can send out pre-recorded messages and, and has an SOS button and everything like that, just because I feel like I've started to learn and see too much and feel mm -hmm. a little bit more secure with that. You know, one of the very big challenges of, of rural trauma is the distances that these patients have to come. And as Avi mentioned as well, it is a challenge for these hospitals who may have one EMS crew to then have that one EMS crew taking this critical patient down to us. And I think the other issue here, and, you know, I don't know if Avi has the same challenge down south, is whether in the winter here, can take what could be, you know, a 20 minute flight and change that to a three and a half hour ground ride. And that, that makes a big difference over the course of the winter about whether we can fly or not. One of the things that I never really considered as far as um, difficulty, you always kind of think of snowstorms as causing problems, but we actually had a lot of problems with high winds here. And so frequently the helicopters won't be able to fly due to high winds. And so they'll be, you know, it'll be clear out here, be like, why can't we fly this patient? And they're like, well, the wind is, the wind is too bad. We can't do it. I guess one of my questions for you guys is, do your flight crews travel with blood products? We're very fortunate. We, we have a great crew. They are able to give blood. They also, you know, are very adept in terms of giving 3%, doing interventions in the helicopter if needed. Um, thankfully, we also have the ability to send those crews out as ground crews if they really need to be there and can't fly. So we're very fortunate, just given what our geography is, to have that as part of our system. And it's, it's true all over Northern New England. I think, you know, one thing that people don't necessarily realize is that Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, each state has one level one trauma center. You know, that's a very different kind of situation than someplace like Boston that has five level one trauma centers in the city. To have one for the state is very different. And yes, the population size is different, but that's a huge, you know, difference that, that you have to contend with as well. It's just, what you're going to be able to get and what type of trauma you're getting over what area is, is very different. Our flight crew that's based at IU does have blood products. And I found that that can be helpful that if it's a long transport, at least they've given blood, they usually start with blood. And I found that that kind of helps with a center that may not have blood products available. That was actually another thing that 
sort of prompted me to want to talk to more rural trauma center folks is that there's amazing work out there about whole blood, about pre-hospital plasma, about pre-hospital blood, about all of these different factors. I wonder sometimes about how we can then adapt that to our environments. And I know some places have started to study what's practical and whether this can be done in more rural areas. But I think that's something we need to continue to look into. Just how are we going to be able to make that practical for places that may not have a close by blood bank or may have more difficulties with storage or other challenges that really kind of raise questions about whether some of those really amazing technologic advancements or knowledge advancements about blood are gonna be able to then extend to all of our patients. So I wanted to um, step back just a second. We, we talked a lot about transport and this is assuming that you are gonna transport. I wanna kind of back up just a step and uh, have a conversation about how do you decide who to transport and how much do you try to manage by just talking to the ER general surgeon at your rural center? It's a very interesting question uh, because we actually have some stuff sort of in the works at the moment that kind of very much particularly addresses this issue. Uh, I will just tell you in, the, in normal circumstances, the way our trauma system works, we rarely as the trauma surgeon actually get a phone call or talk to anybody ahead of time the referring facility will call ATCC, which is our trauma system, our state trauma system. The ATCC will take the call, triage injuries and decide where the patient needs to go within the system. So the, the first notification I typically will get is a page saying there's a patient 10 minutes out. So I don't actually have a lot of pre-arrival discussion or, or information about the patient or with the referring facility. But how it relates to your question is with numbers for COVID going up and the entire health system in Arkansas getting stretched, one of the things that we're actually right in the midst of discussing is trying to figure out a means for us to provide teletrauma services to other facilities in the event that patients can't get transferred, which is a real legitimate concern right now, given the way the numbers are. There's a very significant concern that, you know, they're going to ask for the bed and we're not going to have any. And so how do we help manage those patients at the referring facility if they can't actually send the patient. And this is primarily with providers who may have had zero experience taking care of a trauma patient. We're very lucky because of our trauma system and because of the rurality of our state, we already have a very robust telehand program and a teleburn program. Piggybacking off that system, we are trying to potentially set up a teletrauma referral program. So if there's a patient that can't come, you know, they ask for the bed, we don't have any beds, the patient has to stay where they are, they will call in through that system to our to an iPad that we'll be carrying on call, and we will provide consultative service, if you will, about how to help support them to manage that patient until and you know whenever they can get a bed to come to our facility. I actually was going to say we developed in the beginning of the COVID surge. I helped put together protocols about which patients could potentially be treated outpatient or who didn't need transfer. I talked with our orthopedic surgeons, our neurosurgeons, our ENT folks, and kind of got a list of injuries that we frequently do transfer, but really probably could be managed either outpatient or with splinting until they can get here. And so we created a protocol. We haven't actually had to go live with it, but it would be, that's kind of an interesting secondary discussion is how many trauma systems have been pushed to develop these kind of contingency plans because of the potential lack of beds with COVID-19. I think that's a really interesting point. The way that our transfer center works, and Avi, I've never heard of a system where, you know, there's a centralized place that sort of accepts for you. Um, that's very different to me than what I've, 
one thing that I have tried to do, just because again, one of the considerations for our patients is how far they have to come and then how far they have to go back to. Mm -hmm. And so if it's a patient with a facial injury that they want to talk to face, I'll try to set that up over the transfer center and say, look, I don't think that there's anything we're going to do differently if that patient comes down here. They're probably going to be outpatient follow-up and then try to keep that from being a transfer. Obviously, you know, if that referring center is uncomfortable in any way, I'm going to accept the patient. That's the right thing to do. But what we try to do is actually see if there's anybody who can be managed just by getting another person on the phone to weigh in, then I think that's another really important thing to do. The trauma is one of those things that's never, it's always been kind of insulated from this remote, you know, methodology because people just don't feel comfortable taking care of trauma patients outside of trauma centers for the most part. But because of COVID, we're forced to deal with these issues because bed space and bed availability resources are tight. You know, we have all taken these phone calls with people with two rib fractures, right? Or a, or a dot ditzel of blood in their head or, you know, an isolated hand fracture that's not open. I mean, these are a, a lot of these injuries that could potentially be managed at referring facilities and trying, you know, we have to be guardians of the system, right? Gatekeepers for the system, because otherwise, if we just say yes to everything, particularly now, then resources are be, will be thin and we'll get overrun. I think that's an interesting point, Avi, um, but I will kind of sit on the other side of the fence where that requires kind of training and teaching numerous hospitals. You know, there's 129 hospitals in the state of Indiana, and you're trying to now train people who have been trained their whole lives that trauma patients need to be treated at trauma centers. I think that it's really hard to kind of say, no, don't worry, we'll be here when they feel uncomfortable. And we've kind of made this standing algorithm is all trauma patients need to go to trauma centers. We're probably right, but I think that we need to be careful about being on our end saying that hospitals, the rural hospitals, the rural providers having a voice in that. There's a lot of other issues that may not be, you know, to us, a two rib fractures may seem simple, but for them, that seems like a, a insurmountable, you know, it may seem insurmountable to take care of them. And your point to the local, local involvement is really important. And Indiana doesn't have a formalized trauma system. And I think that having a state with a trauma system is really advantageous to try and build those relationships so that the rural hospitals feel supported um, and not like, oh, we're being gatekeepers, but we're doing this for the right patient. We've got to get the right patient to the right hospital. Well, yeah, I think you're right. We, I'm, I trained in a state that didn't have a trauma system. Georgia didn't have any organized trauma system. And the way we deal with patients and transfers on a day-to-day -day basis is far superior in Arkansas than Georgia because we have this organized trauma system. And so you're right. Some of this is playing into or catering into their comfort level with dealing with these problems. And because we have the trauma system, they do feel more supported because they have a ready means to call and request help. I think this teletrauma program is sort of an extension of that, is to give them that support. You know, right now, it's, it's never really an issue of whether we want to take care of these patients or not. It's literally, do we have the resources to take them? And so we're really legitimately in the last two weeks in Arkansas on the verge of, I wouldn't say being overrun, but the system being pushed to its max and not being able to accept transfers because of that. And so it's a real, you know, day-to-day -day concern right now, you know, within our trauma program as to how do we help support these facilities when we literally can't take the patient. So that's how this, this tele-trauma program sort of came about. So we'll see. We haven't actually, I, I think the go-live is supposed to be sometime this week or early next week, but we're still trying to tweak details. One of the interesting things I've found with resource allocation, 
Currently, I'm, I'm at a level one center and I've been deployed to the medical ICU. So my experience the past few weeks has been more the medical stuff. But the transfers, they're getting further and further away because they can't get to their local level two because they're full. So then they call the next level one and they're full. So then they're calling us. It's just mind boggling. I'm like, wait a minute, you're four and a half hours away. Like there's three centers between you and I, but no one has a bed. And so it's not just, can we support the regions that we currently work in and normally support the 17 counties are surrounding me. It's now it's extending out to people are getting desperate. And so if there are general surgeons who are comfortable managing rib fractures, probably more comfortable, but sometimes they don't have general surgery call on the weekend. And so mm -hmm. now we're asking the ER to call the hospitalist and ask them to start admitting trauma patients. And they're, they're even less comfortable. So I love this idea of teletrauma service because if we could have a conversation on Monday evening, you admit the patient, and then you know that Tuesday morning, we're gonna talk again. And then if you need me at any time, Tuesday afternoon, we'll talk. And then Wednesday, if you need to call me again and we can walk this patient through their hospitalization, that would be a huge supportive service that I, I think that if, if, if you launch this and it works, I think we should, they're you, not we, <laughs> you, because I don't want to take credit for your work, but that it would be a resource that maybe that we could offer and maybe the, the task force could even help kind of put this in our trauma toolkit for like, how can we make this a thing? You know, I, I absolutely, that was one of my ideas is, you know, when we talk, actually, we just had our first meeting about this a week ago. And so when we're in the midst of that meeting, and my first thought was, how do what how can we make this work? And if we can make it work, how do we utilize the task force to maybe take the concepts and the operational piece to everybody else? Now, there, I'll be, be honest, there are some back-end logistical issues that are at play that it's not, a, you know, it's not so simple as, okay, just give us a call and we'll help you. You know, there are legitimate concerns about liability and providing ongoing care. Are we establishing a therapeutic relationship? You know, right now, as it stands, it's just going to be consultative service, you know, at the initiation of the patient being there. But you're right. I mean, if we really play this out, if we're talking about patient-centered care, the ideal scenario would be they can call in the next day and say, hey, what about this? This is what's changed. We provide that service. But again, there are, you know, the, the, the back-end argument against it is, well, then we're establishing a therapeutic relationship, and is there medical malpractice and liability concerns? And these are legitimate questions that should be asked and should be discussed. You know, I've, I've never been of the mindset that we should not provide care simply because of liability issues, but some people have more concern about that. And, you know, so it's, it's stuff that we have to talk about. We haven't really flushed it all out yet, but I think there's a real potential for this to be a game changer, for, particularly for rural trauma care. I think the other thing that I hate talking about, but is for real, is very real, is that um, there is a financial consideration, right? Especially if it's not in a health system that is your home health system, are you basically robbing yourself of RVUs, income, patient care? Frankly, somehow we have to pay the bills. How do we balance that? How do we, you know, provide the optimum care for a patient? and try to keep them where, where it's good for them, but also kind of recognize that we are in a health system that is uh, a money-making, hopefully, uh, endeavor. You hit the nail on the head. This is another one of the big angst points of concern and discussion has been, how do we handle remuneration? How do we handle the time commitment? I mean, these are legitimate, medicine is a business, whether we like it or not. This is just the reality of life. And so if we are doing things and we're providing a service and we're making the effort and we're providing both the, the clinical support and the cognitive support behind how to manage these patients, there's, there should be some discussion about 
how do we get remunerated for that? I'm not saying it's a mandate. I'm not certainly not saying it's a priority over taking care of patients, but these are legitimate discussions that should be had. And, you know, especially when you consider that there are other services or other specialties that provide telehealth services and do get paid for it. Our priority here is to take care of patients, provide the service, but these are issues that need to be discussed, both again, local, regional, and national levels to help come up with, it doesn't necessarily have to be a consolidated plan across the country, but at least to stimulate discussion and debate about the best way to help develop these programs and to move forward. I think one thing that is positive, you know, it's hard to say positive within the pandemic, but positive in terms of we are now setting a precedent. I mean, I know that my institution has tele-ICU services, they have tele-ED services. And so those things have already started to be established. And I think that we can look towards that expertise to find out how can we do this in the best way possible so we can still serve our patients who need us in a way that's productive for the patient, productive for the referring hospital who needs the support, and then also is able to be still productive for our own center so that we can provide that kind of 360 support all around for everybody. And I think we're in a sort of whole new world that I don't think any of us wanted to be in, but if there is sort of that light at the edge, maybe this is how we can start benefiting our patients that are coming from farther away that may can, maybe actually can just stay closer to home if we can help them do that. And I think that would be really important. And that sort of raises a question for me that I wanted to talk to you all about is how hard is it or how challenging is it for you to be discharging these patients from faraway counties or from rural spaces, you know, what are the limitations to that for you all? And how does that kind of adjust your care? Obviously, we want to be able to get people back to a place near home. But in New Hampshire, we are severely limited on how many facilities we can actually discharge people to. COVID has made it significantly worse. But, you know, that's, I think, also a really big consideration for our rural trauma patients is how do we provide them support from their family, which we know is important? And how do we provide them, you know, appropriate places to go to after the hospital and appropriate follow-up care when the distance and the transportation can be a huge challenge? So one of the things we've done, at least on on the trauma surgical side, is we've set up, you know, remote uh, um, follow-ups as much as we can in our clinic. I mean, it's not a very simple setup. There's a program on the computer and there's a video camera. And so as much as we can, we try to do our trauma follow-ups virtually. If it's, if it's reasonable and it's safe for the patient, that's helped to some degree. But, you know, for the orthopedic follow-up and the neurosurgical follow-up, it's really a challenge. Well, just to give you an idea, we don't have LTEX in the state of New Hampshire. Oh, not It at doesn't all. exist. Not at all. Yeah. And so that's already a limitation for us. And then, you know, as you said, we try to cluster care. And so we have one of the best admins, I think, anybody could ever have. And she does an amazing job to cluster appointments for these patients coming from far away. So they go from ortho clinic to neurosurgery clinic to trauma clinic. And then, you know, it's one really unfortunately long day for the patient, but that way they're not trying to go back and forth. And so we're fortunate to have her and she works really hard to make that happen. But that's not an easy thing to try to coordinate. I would love to be able to do that here, but it's, it's a logistical nightmare to even try and, and get it set up where we are. One thing that um, Spectrum Health set up, it's the level one trauma center in uh, downtown Grand Rapids, is the acute care multidisciplinary trauma clinic. And essentially it is an entire floor. It's all open. Everyone can see each other and you've got, you know, orthopedic surgery sitting next to trauma surgery, sitting next to burn surgery, sitting next to PMNR, sitting next to our social worker. And they will coordinate like uh, Alexander's kind of describing like a day at the clinic and you're going to come and hit and there's somebody there most days who can sort out who needs to be seen. And then you see your social worker 
and then you get your PM&R and then everything gets kind of coordinated and it's a really nice kind of like open office space. There's not different surgeons who are particular to each day. It's just, you're gonna to come to the trauma clinic and it might be Dr. A who happens to be covering that day, but they know how to manage a hip fracture. So that's who you're gonna see. And this guy's gonna look at your ostomy and tell you that it's pink, patent and productive. And then this guy's gonna help you with your you know, social work issues. So it's a really, really nice kind of system. It just got set up last year um, and the patients like it, the providers like it. It's just, if there's some way we could do that in multiple different areas, especially these rural areas. So they can make that one six hour trip down and get all their care and follow up. Cause like you said, Ashley, otherwise they're not gonna follow up. So is that, is that just one day a week or is that every day? That's a, like, I mean, that's, a, that's an impressive setup. Yeah, that clinic is open every day. You know, it might be that trauma surgery is there two days a week. Him and our, I, I don't know their schedule, but let's say they're there for most days. Ortho's there every day. We have an x-ray machine in the office. Um, so it might be, because a lot of trauma patients don't actually need to see the trauma surgeon. So if you just need ortho and PM&R, you come in on Wednesday. If you need trauma, ortho, and PM&R, then you need to come in on either Tuesday or Thursday. So there's kind of different like slots that you can fit into. And then there's just coordinators who just figure out, and we tag these patients on discharge, who they actually need to see. And then mm -hmm. they kind of slot into whichever day works the best. And it's not perfect, but it, it works great for the majority of patients to be able to kind of come in. And you can see it on the schedule when they hit the door, that might be my 1.30 appointment, but they're running late because x-ray is running late. So it's fine. I just keep seeing other patients and I know that I'm going to fit them in as soon as they see ortho. And, you know, the ortho nurse will come out and come over to my, you know, MA and say, hey, we're done. It's your turn. And then we go next door to PM&R. Hey, it's your turn. And we just kind of go down the row and just everyone manages to get seen. I think that's a wonderful system. And I think, you know, this is what I want the Rural Trauma Task Force in part to be able to do is have this discussion. I've never had that experience and that would be an amazing clinic to be able to set up. You know, yes, we try to do sort of an approximation of that, but it's not all in the same space. And so if just by chatting with each other, we're able to share this information and share ideas that can benefit our patients. That's the other thing that I want for this Rural Trauma Task Force is being able to get more voices in and say, hey, we decided that we had the same challenge as you. And so this is what we're doing about it. Because otherwise we're all in our little rural silos not being able to actually share this information. I think it's just like some of the burn surgeons out there, they try to get together and talk about these things because they're you know, also in these little spots around the country and don't necessarily otherwise get to exchange information. I know they're doing some of the same work to try to share techniques, share ways to follow up, share all of that. And so that's what I'm hoping that we can do here because just from this discussion today, it's like, oh, that is an interesting idea from Ashley and that's from Avi and that's from Carrie and then maybe we can do something better you know, if we can, we can get this idea together. And if we all put our heads together and write this down for everybody, that's a toolkit for how do we can improve rural trauma care. That's what I want to do. One of the other things that we also have to recognize is, is the selection bias of patients we get called about and actually transferred to us. I mean, the number of our referring and critical access hospitals who are seeing actually a fair amount of traumatic injuries that we never hear about is significant. The ones that they can manage and send home, the ones that they are comfortable managing, things like that. And so realizing that, that we're called for the serious things or the things that are more out of the ordinary, we've trained as a hospital system and to tell people to call us about. But I think it's certainly worth recognizing how much trauma is managed without us. Partners has done a lot of work and shows that there's a fair, there's a very high amount of patients who are managed at non-trauma hospitals. Pretty sure that there's been previous data that shows that most geriatric trauma patients are managed at non-trauma hospitals. 
Yeah, and I think there's that ongoing need for us to also continue to look at from a research perspective, from a trauma center perspective, how do we figure out what patients need to come and what patients don't? Because there's always that unexpected one that you think could have stayed that turns out they shouldn't have or vice versa. How do we best figure out who can stay, who can go? How do we do this better? Given all the challenges that we were talking about, about transport, about resources, about disposition, all of those things, we have to strike the right balance, as Ashley mentioned, to make sure we're doing the absolute best for our patients. Were there any questions or topics with level one trauma centers supporting rural trauma patients that we hadn't touched on yet? I think one thing I, I would mention is that, you know, coming here, I definitely get a fair number of calls where, you know, we talk about management issues, whether it's blood, whether it's reversal agents, whether it's 3% or mannitol or whatever that is, where some of the questions that I get, which are appropriate because this isn't something that they experience every day is, you know, what's the dose of that? How fast do my nurses give it? Things like that, that I think that sometimes training in places who are so familiar with it, we don't even think about. But it's something that if you're going to go out and be supporting a rural trauma area, you need to know that off the top of your head. I think that's an important point. We It's incumbent upon us at the tertiary centers and the level one centers to think about these things and keep an open mind and recognize that when we make these recommendations, we can't just spout off a recommendation and then say, see you later. We have to follow up with, do you guys have re access to that? Do you have mannitol? Do you have platelets? And if you, if you, if you don't, then okay, let's think about this, the second line thing that we could use or the third line thing that we can use. We need to be an open-ended resource for them. And, and sometimes it's going to be us prompting them and thinking about realizing that they may not have that rather than, rather than putting the onus on them to say, I don't have it. And I think the other thing is that it shows us as educators, what we need to be doing better for our residents and our students. This is how we appreciate what actually is going on down the road or wherever that may be. And I, I think that we need to teach the same thing about pre-hospital transport, about some of the EMS crews, about how you know air support works and things like that. The challenges that they face to get those patients to us and the environments that they're in and trying to get airways in a ditch, we as physicians and some of our trainees are isolated from and don't fully appreciate. The people that we're training who are going to follow us, when they get to our position, are going to be like, I know what you're talking about. I know how hard it was to go and extricate this person from the woods and then try to intubate them at the side of the road and do all of those things and sort of, you know, give us a better appreciation for what comes before us so that then we can treat that better. Yeah, I think that's where the um, uh, Rural Trauma Task Force is really going to come into play. And this toolkit's a great idea. And I've, I've pulled a bunch of ideas from this conversation. I'm looking forward to the next trauma cast, and perhaps we'll have a third one and kind of touch on these uh, topics. And, and again, um, you can find the trauma cast on Twitter. And if you have anything to add or have um, topics that you want us to touch on, just let us know. I want to say thank you to all three of you for joining us. I'll just say that if there's any rural trauma providers who want to join in a, in a trauma cast, please let Alexandra yes. or I know. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You can always reach out. It's East or at East underscore TraumaCast on Twitter, and you can send me a direct message or, or post on a little, little Twitter feed thing that people post on. All right. Thanks, everybody. Morning, everybody. I appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, 
professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.